0: Hi everyone, it's Tom Quee here with ESO Recordings for the first episode of Live Fast Die Ugly, the 100 Reasons podcast. With the band's first album in 15 years, Glorious Sunset, set to be released in February 2023, along with a much-anticipated accompanying tour, now seems as good a time as any to look back upon and celebrate one of the UK's all-time unsung juggernauts. And we're going to get into everything a 100 Reasons, and we're going to do that via in-depth conversations with members of the band themselves, as well as their inner circle, with each episode cutting between these chats to give a kaleidoscopic, multi-perspective history on this legendary band across four jam-packed episodes. We're talking the global tours, the fiercely loyal fanbase, the chart breakthroughs, the brutally consistent tunes, the disbandment, the reunion, and everything in between. This episode is all fascinating pre-history then, looking at each of the members' formative musical beginnings before we work our way up to just prior to the recording of the monolith-that-is ideas above our station. So just before we start, make sure you've pre-ordered the new album and got your tickets for the show, and, you know, with that, what better way to kick off than with the incredible vocalist, British rock institution unto himself, Colin Durran. <laughs>
1: Hit up quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com upgrade.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. getting into this podcast doing the research for this podcast like i've been a fan of yours of the band for quite a long time but i must admit that i didn't know the full back catalog like you know this last week or so this last couple of weeks i've had you on rotation and and that's one of the things that sears through like the guitars are obviously front and center and incredibly dynamic and inventive but your vocals too just just really really stand out aside from all those other bands at the time like the way you kind of sail above the power that comes
2: through it's it's pretty unforgettable Well, thank you very much. I think whenever I'm sort of writing melodies and stuff, if that's not too early to kind of get into, but whenever I'm sort of writing, I don't necessarily worry too much about what I'm writing. I just think about whether the melodies are good or not. And that's the thing for me. I I don't mind pop music. So for me, having that sort of sensibility, I think was always there. And I think as long as you're just writing stuff that you like, I'm kind of one of those people that lets other people put a label on it. So although we were kind of, post hardcore emo whatever was kind of doing the rounds at the time it was really just write rock music and again it's not like we we're even sitting here thinking we must write rock music it's just that the type of music that we like happens to be rock music so that was what was going to come out so for us it was just write good music and enjoy the writing and enjoy what you're singing and what you're doing and don't worry too much about whether it's like someone else or not just write what you enjoy and what you like
0: I want to start with that then yourself and music you know what you consider good music like who were your first bands like what were the first kind of albums that you fell in love with
2: um I think Adam and the Ants Prince Charming was one oh yeah I, I love things like AHA because I was in 80s kind of growing up in the 80s born in the 70s because I'm that old but enjoyed the 80s things like you know like bobby brown and stuff Namie mm. cherry you know all that kind of pop music at the time it was just there and then i think the first music to really kind of light a fire was um, guns and roses and appetite for destruction oh my god it was just such a full-on record and i think for me it was like a really good gateway record as well because i had friends of mine that were into the music as well we went to see guns and roses wembley stadium in 92 oh my and god. it was like um faith No More and Soundgarden supported and for me that's kind of where I went, I went off to that. So although I would say that Guns N' Roses had a massive influence on me, I think the biggest influence was Faith Nemo or Angel Dust. I didn't even really, I mean, I liked the real thing, but I didn't really care too much about the real thing at the time. It was just, Angel Dust was just so eclectic and weird and amazing and cool. And I think that's kind of what really kind of made me want to sort of be in a band because, you know, I'm sure many people have said this before, but you know, Mike Patton was just incredible so for me you know those were the kind of bands and i had friends of mine that were kind of getting into the lighter stuff so to get to things like extreme and Def leopard mm. um which i'm not in hindsight now where i am i, I like those bands probably more deaf leopard than extreme but i then sort of went and started getting into things like Sepultura and pantera mm. and prom um and bands like sick of it all and Rikers and Strife and you know all those kind of hardcore bands so that's kind of where I went <laughs> so Guns N' Roses to me was a really good kind of gateway band sort of take you anywhere Um, but yeah I sort of went heavier. I mean Appetite like one of the ultimate
0: debuts right?
2: Yeah it's definitely not bad as <laughs> debuts go. Um Yours well, is
0: often heralded you know <laughs> as kind of a great debut. Of-
2: no I think with just with Guns and Roses it you know I think something that's really good about bands is that when they come out a lot of it is to do with timing as well and whether the scene is kind of ready and i think that even though bands came after guns and roses like nirvana and the whole sort of grunge scene which is kind of like the antithesis if you will of Mm. sort of hair hair rock guns and roses themselves were kind of even though they kind of had some of them had big hairdos at the time they were their attitude was more punk rock and even though Again, you look at that sort of Motley Crue, they had all the attitude to go with it. But I think Guns N' Roses, for me personally, just really had the songs. Um, and they were just brilliant together. Um, yeah, seminal moment. But again, sort of different enough from the other bands that were doing the rounds. I never really got into that sort of 80s hair rock or anything like that. Never got into Iron Maiden. And that's no disrespect to Iron Maiden. It was just mm. never really my, my thing. Um, but Guns N' Roses, you know, it was exciting and you didn't know what they were going to do and it was amazing.
0: Okay, and on to Larry now, as we speak about his early musical years, featuring a particularly incredible youth club. So, you know, one of the things that I'm really interested in is kind of like your history with music and those first inklings and when you started playing and, you know, when you started playing with other people and sort of getting a grasp on that sort of thing. From what I gather, there was a youth club in Twickenham that was pretty formative to your development, right?
3: Yeah, that's right. So I'd grown up in a fairly standard issue middle class south west london family and when i was very young i'd played classical music i played cello when i was about 4 years old and had played in orchestras but had not really carried that on just lost interest in it and when i was got to secondary school and made friends there we were all more interested in being in bands and start, i started playing the drums at school And, you know, when you start playing instruments like that at school, you quite quickly, well, I got quite quickly found all the other people in the year, which was maybe about 10 people that were interested in doing that sort of thing. And you all sort of get together and start playing at lunchtime and whenever you can get access to the room that's got a drum kit in it. And then I can't remember how, but we got connected with a place in Twickenham, which wasn't that far from my school, called Heatham House, which had a had a couple of things that were very exciting to us as, what were we, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds. Um It had a recording studio, probably quite a grand term for it by today's standards. But that is standards. still unbelievable,
0: though. Like, it's, you could record things in yeah, it. Like... So
3: basically, there was a, a youth worker there called Lewis Sykes, I still remember his name, who at some point had got a bit of a grant off Richmond Council, which was the local council, you know, maybe something like five or ten grand and had used that money to put this little studio together obviously in studio equipment terms that's minuscule but for when you're 13 you've got that much equipment sat in a room which was like a little eight track tape Mm -hmm. machine and a mixing desk and a handful of microphones and a couple of bits of you know a couple of gates and compressors and whatever that's like it may as well have been a spaceship to us at that age and it was just the most amazing thing ever um and you could just go and book, like, four-hour slots in there. I can't even remember if it cost any money. If it did, it was, like, a quid. And you could just go in and, like, and just... They had rooms you could go and rehearse in. And then uh, you'd just book in slots in the recording studio upstairs. And we just all started recording our own bands and each other's bands and doing that from quite an early age, which was great. And this, this place also had a... It was an old, like, manor house sort of mm. building... And in Twickenham, right, literally opposite Twickenham Stadium. If you've ever gone to Twickenham Stadium, you come out of Twickenham and turn right. You would have walked. Yeah, right I, past saw, it. I saw
0: Metallica there a few years ago. I, w- I was walking past Hundred Reasons History and didn't even know it. Like
3: <laughs> you were, yeah, yeah, literally opposite the station. It's the Post Office Depot. Um, they also had this sports hall next to it, which in within which we started putting on monthly band nights, where four bands would play. Um, normally, a sort of rotating cast of the same yeah. 10 to 15 bands, let's say, but you know, four of them would play every month and we'd make posters what, and put what them were the up. And... Do you remember the
0: names? Do you remember the names of the bands?
3: Yeah, my band was called, my first band was called Hog, H O G G. I was the drummer. My friend Charlie, who I'm still very good friends with, was the singer. Then what other bands were there? There was a band called. I think they're actually called the in-betweens this is obviously a Did long share. way before the in-betweeners so that name wouldn't have been as funny they were called the in-betweens they sounded a bit like senseless things who are also from that area i don't know if you remember that i band. don't actually i gonna have to dig <laughs> these out uh they were they sent the senseless things were sort of a class seminal indie band morgan who was in the senseless things ended up for years being the fourth guy in muse oh, wow so he was the guy at the back of the stage playing the keyboards So anyway, that was that was him, and he he started up in the Simpsons. There was Concrete Garden, was a band. There was a band called Fluid. There was a band called Ripe, who sounded exactly like Reef. (laughs) Uh, There was (laughs) oh, one my favourite band, which is a band that I wasn't in. I was kind of occasionally in or I was definitely a bit player in that band. But this is my first production job was about ba- a, a punk band called The Walking Abortions.
0: Oh, uh, Manic Street Preachers like, reference, right?
3: Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So that band was my first production job, which I recorded them in the in the studio at Heatham House. They paid me a packet of 20 Marble Light cigarettes. <laughs> That was my production fee. Um, and we were like 14, yeah. I think. And that single got put out on a punk label called Damaged Goods. So that sort of first thing that we ever did actually exists as a seven inch that was released into the greater world, which was quite a thing at the time. so
0: these kind of early, you know, I mean, successes by the sounds of it, you know, in, in certain ways with the Walkin' Abortions. Like, what sort of world were you inhabiting when... 100 Reasons started to coalesce. I mean, Colin has said that you joining the band was really when it started to become a real thing, a real entity in many ways. Like, what what was your kind of story just before joining them with music? Like, what bands were you in? What were you doing?
3: Before joining them, I carried on out of that kind of scene. That All that stuff in the youth club was maybe six or mm. seven years before I joined 100 Reasons. So after that, I'd gone through various bands, a band called PSI, which was like a straight-up hardcore band then a band called Jetpack, which was like a three-piece pop-punk band. And it was actually Jetpack dying and Floor dying, which was the band that the other four-fifths of 100 Reasons were in. And that's when I... And we, Jetpack and Floor, had played together, and we kind of had the same management and knew each other. So when I left them and Floor needed somebody, I joined Floor, and then Floor became 100 Reasons. So, yeah, I guess it was that it was then that Hundred Reasons started doing well. I don't know if that was down to me joining or what, but that's how the timing worked out. And at that point, actually I think like it was just a kind of quite a fortuitous and fruitful meeting of mm. worlds because Floor were quite Floor were quite heavy. They were definitely in the sort of more in the new metal world that was huge yes. at that time and I was definitely more in the listening to Fugazi and Minor Threat and a bit more of a sort of early emo kind of place. So I guess those two worlds meeting uh, in the middle is, would explain quite a lot what the uh, you know 100 Reasons style was initially, I'd say.
0: So we've heard about the musical origins of Colin, heard about Larry too, now let's check in with bassist Andy. So like your musical beginnings then. Was bass the first instrument? Did you graduate from guitar or elsewhere? Um
4: for me, I think I've, I went through all the, the classic kids things when you were a kid going. So you had know, the the you know the, the little flute um yes. the flute but you know the little um <laughs> the recorder, recorder and the yeah. recorder, that's it, yeah. One of the recorders the and then, Yeah, I think I was around about the age of ten when like my brother picked up my um, middle brother Stu picked up the guitar and kind of made me go. Actually, I should probably give that a go as well. Basically, so I mm. kind of picked up probably around similar sort of time. Maybe he was like a year ahead of me, sort of thing. And I was yeah, I was doing guitar for a bit. And I think the funniest thing is is that at my school we had like a nice music room sort of that had just had stuff in it like gear yeah. in it. So I kind of half taught myself to play drums in there as well, just you know just hitting stuff and yeah, it sounds amazing, but you know when you're a kid, it's like when there's so many on the outside here I go, Jesus Christ, it sounds like he's basically smashing a load of like, yeah. like bins together, like yeah, a guitar was like the first proper instrument for me, like but um you know i i would like to think I've been very musical from a very early age, so it's like I was never gonna need just on that. Yeah, um, but you know, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to try different things and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, uh, this little music room, but they actually had a bass, and I remember picking it up. And interestingly enough, like um, the first time I ever picked up a bass, it was like this red, it might have been like a marlin. It was just just a piece of crap, True. but like it was four strings on it. It still had its four strings on it. Yeah. I just remember, yeah, picking it up. And because I'd seen, you know, I've like, always seen, like, people playing, like, like, other stuff like magazines are, like, always the bass player playing with their fingers. So, like, instantly it was, like, my mentality was not pick it up and try and play it like a guitar. I was always, like, you have to sort of play it like a bass. And that's why I always, I, I was straight from the start, first time I ever picked up a bass. It was, like, trying to play it with my fingers, sort of thing. So... Yeah, so that kind of set me up on, on on the route. Interestingly enough, obviously, even though guitar is kind of the first love, is kind of in that respect, like on bass. You know, you kind of sort of find your niche almost in a way, like yeah, I realize like like I'm a you know I'm a, I'm a de- decent okay guitar player basically, but like I'm a much better bass player, like you know so. Yeah, I think you just have to have that kind of mentality. Like, um, you can, you can, I can usually hear someone who's just a guitar player who's picked up a bass and just make do from a mile away. Do you know what I mean? Like, you have oh, to put yeah. yourself in a, you have to put yourself in a different mentality. Like, even though it's like, oh, it's only got full At The end of the day, like, if you know, if guitars mess up in a in a song, then then you can probably get away with it. But like, if bass messes up in the song, oh. everything sounds like a train wreck.
0: So, If there was a bum note in Remus, you'd know about it, like, so, you know. Oh, there's been plenty of bum
4: notes when I played
0: Remus, yes. So, you know, moving forward then, beyond just playing for fun and then getting into, you know, more kind of serious, quote-unquote, endeavours when you're slightly older, like, 100 Reasons comes out of this, the kind of, the the soupy broth of Jetpack and Floor, and, you know, that that kind of, you know, lots of those kind of overlapping (laughs) scenes there, like... What, what was your sort of position? What was your sort of memory of those early days, the early bands you were in, that sort of thing, building up to 100 Reasons?
4: I was like, always like, you know, because like when I was, when I fully got into guitar, I was like, I was like a lot of people, basically, I was fully into it. So I was like, any spare moment, you basically just sat in your room just playing stuff. And the one thing <laughs> I've always tried to do from the word go was listen to stuff and just, figure out how they played it you know like like learn how to play songs from things, this is why I, i'm still yes, not the yeah. best I'm, I'm not particularly the best at reading like music like music theory and stuff like that like i can can do it but it's kind of yeah not natural to me like i prefer to just listen to something and figure out that way it's always more interesting to me so i was like i was I, you know obviously got to a certain point where i thought i was you know pretty decent and then trying to um just find like-minded individuals around my area which at the time was like pretty much like rocking all shit (laughs) to to put it lightly Uh it was like especially drummers especially drummers like like back in the day like in my local area like drummers were literally like actual gold dust like (laughs) and not not just you know like any kind of drummer basically someone was like I can do a four-four beats. It's like, right, you're in. You're in like <laughs> five bands. Right. So it's like, you know, we went as as, as far as went as far as I could up until the point where, you know, it was I was struggling to find people that was kind of on the same level of like ability and commitment, I think is, is the yeah. way I look at it. You know, I wanted to play music, you know, whether or not it was going to be professional or not, you know, you want to do it if you're going to do it, do it properly. You yeah. know, you don't want to sort of half arse it and stuff like that. So um, yeah, funnily enough, uh, it was around 1997. I think it was 1997 that I met Colin, and I kind of sort of they like he was in another ba- he was in another band with another guy called Colin as well. So funnily enough, he was like really short. So funnily enough, we called him Big Colin and Little Colin. <laughs> Because you know that's what you do, <laughs> sure.
0: and, the Andy, um, etc. Like, you know.
4: Well, I'm only called the Andy because there's two Andys. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I'm, I'm not Andy. I'm the Andy. <laughs> so, but this is this is the you can only really have nicknames like that with other people giving them to you. So, but I'm in not, my I'm in my there.
0: eyes, the tall Colin is the Colin. Like,
4: yeah, well, he is now because no one even knows. I mean, no, no one knows. More
0: than that. So, and what no mean, one knows I mean, that guy. So, Colin's voice like, when you first encountered it, like, as extraordinary as ever, I imagine. Like, it's just, what a thing.
4: Well, yeah, it was, it's interesting because, like, like most people, you know, he was still finding his feet. He was still, like, a little bit rough around the edges, mm. but I really liked Colin from the get-go. I thought he was brilliant. And all the bands that I'd seen play, and they all had Wicked front man, and I was just like, oh, I want that. And Colin's like, it, it was interesting because I joined... This band briefly mm. before it sort of molded into Floor, basically. And at the first practice, it was just me on guitar and Colin on bass and Colin singing. And we literally we were playing like Deftones covers and jumping around. Mm. And it was like no drummer, but we were like literally like, "This is brilliant! This is amazing!" and stuff like that. But so it took a little bit of time for us to find you know like-minded people, you know. So. actually join and then it kind of changed from that band it changed into floor from there so
0: what about the other guys coming into the mix like how did you encounter larry then
4: well interestingly going back for paul basically we got paul involved because funnily enough like going back to the 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 rare drummers like we got paul's brother mike into play for floor and bless him he's a lovely bloke he's literally like it, but he'd been in a band with his dad for um, years. So, and right. all he ever wanted to play was like ACDC stuff. So it's like, he was, he was like, and he knew his way around 4 4 beat and not really yeah. a lot that else. So we got him and we kind of, Paul was free and he kind of tagged along. So that's how Paul kind of involved because, of, and further down the line, um, Mike left. And that's when we sort of half inched Mr. Busy from like uh another band's like uh, a hardcore band called under zero so nice. uh yeah <laughs> everybody everybody's got a great sort of cheesy band name back in those days so well it's, yeah
0: yeah but, no no uh, larry's larry's mentioned a few of them actually and, and yeah I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with them but like and, and and musically for you it was all coming together like cause the hundred oh, yeah well, sound is just such a unique force like
4: well, it's interesting because like because there's hundred reasons we actually tune a whole step down, so it's mm. like it's like D standard, um, and that all stems from floor, and we were like, oh, we need to make it a bit heavier, so like we tuned down to to D, and we we're like, oh, brilliant, this is this works, you know. We didn't want to just do the drop D like a lot of bands are doing. We we're like, no, we're going to do the whole thing so yeah. it all works, and, and it was also is good for Col- like Colin's Vocal Register actually worked, worked better with a whole step down as well, because, you know, like, not that you can't sing bloody high, but it's just, it's a bit more brooding and that sort of thing. And sure. and Floor was actually quite, we were quite sort of heavy, and we had some sort of, yeah, like, not doom, but like, you know, some pretty big sort of fat riffs and stuff like that. So, interestingly enough, then... Um, when Larry was uh sort of came onto the scene, like we sort of I remember we played a gig in a local gig and he turned up jetpack. And I think pretty sure it was that gig where they all turned up uh, and they're all wearing like jumpsuits for some reason. And this was right. like this is like before like Slipknot. So um beat yeah. them to the punch with that one, mm-hmm. I think. I think it was that gig, it might be another one, but like I remember and I just remember they were just like three guys, loads of energy. And I was like, this is brilliant. And then obviously got talking to Larry and, you know, got on well and liked a load of bands very similar. And you know, that was that. And you, you, you carry on. And then the next thing, you know, like um things came to a head with little Colin and he kind of got booted out. And at the same time, Jetpack kind of died on its ass. And so our management, we ended up sharing the same management at the same time. And they came to us and went, well, Larry's looking for a new band. Do you, like, do you think you guys would be interested in taking him on? And we're like, well, yeah, I guess, you know, he's, the, you know, seems like a cool dude and, like, he knows his way around a guitar. This is, this is, you know, half the battle, really. <laughs> and, you know, he knows how to write some tunes. And I think we were kind of sort of slowly aiming that, to me a little bit add a bit more pop element to what we were doing anyway so that was kind of like a natural progression for us to do. So, so Larry was like literally the right person at the right time to come on board with us. Uh, funnily enough, like as a sort of expanding my horizons, basically, I actually did a little bass course, um, a place called the ACM in Guildford, which mm. is like a, did it with a, a, a extremely talented bass guy called Damien Keyes. who's a wonderful man, but, um, I did that just, I don't know why I did it. I think I just did it because I had a bass and I wanted to, you know, when you just want to go add another string to your bow sort of yeah. thing. Funny enough, like about a month later, this all went down and then they were like, and they, kind of, they also sort of had a little sort of took me to one side and was like, um, yeah, if we get Larry and guitar, can you move over to bass? I was like, yeah, right, go on then. That's <laughs> just like very nonchalant <laughs> about the whole thing. And yeah, so uh, the next thing you know, we are 100 Reasons. We're literally like, uh, we can't stay our name on the floor. We'll just, we'll start something new. And then that's kind of how 100 Reasons started.
0: I'm back to Colin now for a discussion of his unforgettable stagecraft, the coming together of the band. And of course, where the band name actually comes from. You're such a captivating performer both on stage and on record like were you into performing early on like even just
2: drama theater were you, were you at the front no. of the class or no no I, don't, I don't remember like I did some singing when I was 10 yeah and it was definitely nothing like I was singing um and my dad said oh you sang in front of the school and I barely remember it and he said and somebody came up to him and said that I was really good and I was like thanks a lot <laughs> but I didn't really sort of think sort of much more of it I think that You know, for me, performance comes down from sort of understanding that people are coming to a show to be entertained. You know, good front men like, you know, Freddie Mercury and stuff would have an impact on me just because they were just great entertainers and no one's ever going to be as good as Freddie Mercury ever. But, you know, understand that people are coming to the show for a good time um, and understanding when people are listening to your music that you kind of have to perform it even, you know, on records. And, And that came from the producer, Dave Sardi because he was just really good at you know i probably you know at the time was was okay at singing but he was just really good at capturing the performance and you could sing something that was correct and it's not going to sound as good as something that was just performed better but maybe it isn't as in tune and then they'll just take pro tools and tune it so he would rather do that um and that was something that I learned you know quite early on that performances in the studio really important obviously you don't want to be completely and utterly out of tune but you know you've got to sit there and think about how you can perform it in conjunction with sort of getting it right tuning wise and that's kind of more for the live environment but in the studio it's you know you've got to make people believe what you're saying or what you're singing that kind of thing
0: 100 reasons was that one of your first bands have you been in a lot of bands
2: like was this something familiar to you i was in a band Mm. and then it was sort of an evolution into 100 Reasons rather than like I quit a band and joined another one I did have a very very first band called Elysian Fields which is something oh, I believe to do with um, that's uh, that's a Megadeth,
0: Megadeth song I've heard that um, stated but yeah Probably, it's like kind of the, at... the, the afterlife isn't it and that's sort of yeah it, it right is deal, yeah.
2: it was quite weird actually because when I watched um, Gladiator it was yes. like I'm gonna we walk through the fields of Elysium, and I thought saw... when I was in the band I didn't really know not that <laughs> I know loads about mythology anyway but... yeah I think it was sort of Greek related so right. then when it was in Gladiator it kind of charred <laughs> at me a little bit but <laughs> in fairness I didn't bother to see whether I was right or wrong or they were mm-hmm. right or wrong or whatever but when you kind of coin the fact that it's actually sort of a Megadeth track and looking at the people in the band I could see how that could be the case. Yes <laughs> yeah. 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 but that was my very first band and then we sort of rehearse on a Saturday night in Guildford and I was like 16 or something and then I'd sneak into the pub around the corner and get served beer and play pool like after rehearsal but I got sacked from that band um you know don't worry I haven't cried about it for quite some time (laughs) I think it was maybe maybe last week I cried about it again but um (laughs) yeah it was I think the guitar player just wanted everything to kind of be his thing and that's not really the way that I work I'm quite sort of collaborative and I expect to have input in the projects that I work on and and things like that so he was kind of like nah and I don't even think we ended up ever sort of playing a show. And then ended up a lot of sort of stuff sort of centred around a club in Canberley called the Court. And, but then somebody sort of came up to me and said, oh, you know, I heard you do a bit of singing, do you want to sort of, you know, come and be in a band? And I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> and then it kind of went from there. <laughs> um, and then it evolved probably more into a hundred reasons rather than, a sequence of different bands. We had different names. I think the, the band before them was called Floor. It's just what we called ourselves, whether that's for good or bad. Um, but it wasn't really 100 Reasons till Larry joined. Um, and that was kind of the final kind of piece of the puzzle, so to speak.
0: And the name, it's, it's been discussed before. Snowboards, I've heard, uh, are involved with it, some sort of thing like that. Yeah, well, Andy
2: Buse used to work at a place called Snow and Rock. And Paul, who played guitar in the band at the time, he was talking they were talking to each other and it said like 2000 reasons or something to to ride Burton snowboards and I think Paul really liked the word 100 hmm. he says oh why don't we just call ourselves 100 reasons and the thing for us is we weren't sort of trying really hard to find like a super duper name or anything like that and I think my my thought process is not do I love it it's do I hate it? <laughs> and if the answer is no, and I can live with it, then that's fine. <laughs> um, and if you look at most band names, a lot of them. Again, let's go back to Megadeth. Oh yeah. You know, and you go back, and go. Yeah, I mean, I'm in a band called Megadeth, and you just go. It <laughs> it is a chemical <laughs> term, though. I remember
0: seeing that in GCSE, like in school yeah. books, and I was like, oh, it is actually. Obviously, it's spelt with the A, but
2: yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I, I get it. But the whole point is, is that most band names aren't particularly amazing no really it's the bands themselves and the quality of the music and their shows that, that make it cool so the thing for me is if you don't hate the name then that's that's good enough for me <laughs> i mean you. i'm easily
0: pleased now um you know i've i've been in a few bands and a very very amateur level kind of thing like at school and university and stuff and one of the ways in which it feels real early on is when you make your social media page or when you put something on soundcloud or but none of this existed back then in 1999 like when did the band start to coalesce as an entity to you like when it started to feel like more of a thing you know i mean it it
2: was in fairness it was when larry joined so larry used to play in a band called jetpack who quite cool actually we did some shows together and, and that kind of thing and he ended up sort of joining um we sacked someone and then he was our bass player at the time and then the Andy had done a bass course and he moved over to play bass to effectively make room for Larry so hats off to the Andy for doing that because he's mm. any, anyways one of the best bass players I, I know and Larry sort of joined and that's when it kind of I think really sort of felt like it gelled and the music that we'd written sort of as floor was okay. Uh, I think it was when Larry sort of came in that we all kind of, it took it up a notch, I think. And I think that was because he was into bands like, you know, Minor Threat and Fagazi and stuff like that. And that yeah. just sort of bought just a different type of energy.
0: Returning now to Larry, who's going to give us some insight into joining the band from his perspective and how the writing process worked with Paul. Can you recall your, your first impressions of the guys? Well, they had this
3: song called Seated Near, which I heard them play. and I just thought it was the best thing i would ever heard in my life. I still remember the riff. I still remember. Uh, it was just brilliant. And I don't. it was never released as 100 Reasons song, I don't think. Or maybe it was. There was a version put out, which I probably didn't even play on that might have been put out as 100 Reasons at some point, but I can't remember. So my first impression was hearing that song and just being like, what on earth is this? It's like nothing I've ever heard before. And when you sort of encounter a band in your local area, I probably saw it at the Peel in Kingston or maybe somewhere in Farnborough or something. And like when you hear that from a band that just like people that you kind of know, you're like, well, Christ, that's kind of crazy. And then Mark and Jane, who had been managing Jetpack, and Ross says, I think starting to look after Floor at that point. They, I'm sure they must have like not put it together. It's not like we're fucking boyzone, but they must have like suggested <laughs> right. that maybe maybe we should. You know, they were looking for a guitar player. I was looking for a band. Yeah, maybe that's something that could work, which it did. And I can't. My, my impressions of them initially, I to be honest, on a personal level, I can't remember. I can't even remember no. the first time that. Yeah. Like, it's just it's just too long ago. But I do have that impression of hearing them play that song and just thinking it was the absolute bollocks.
0: I'm interested about the writing in the band, because obviously the band are, they're such a kind of lead singer, vocal kind of juggernaut band, but such a guitar band as well in so many ways. And, you know, the kind of spaces that you and Paul occupy and, you know, the strum and drang of that, it's a lot more interesting than, say, like, like an Aerosmith. Like, I don't mind Aerosmith, but you know what I mean? It's just kind of like very standard duties in that band kind of thing. Yeah. But here in 100 Reasons, it's much more dynamic. And like, how was writing the guitar parts and stuff like that? Was it, were you kind of taking each other's ideas? Were you bringing stuff to the fore? Like, how did that work? It was somewhat
3: haphazard and chaotic, um, not particularly planned. And kind of, I think, at its best when it was sort of singular in purpose and but could quite easily lead to nothing when there was no direction so like you know we it would come out of jams and paul would play something i play something and we would have lots of conversations about which guitar part was going where if it ever got too complicated i found it stalled quite quickly because none of us are like real musicians so you know whenever we tried to do anything complicated it absolutely fell on its ass um from a sort of harmonic point of view between the two guitars. But when we found voicings that sounded good with each other, like I think we always had a idea in our heads that we were making, that we were making an entire chord out of the three stringed instruments we had, you know, the bass and two guitars. Yeah. So we'd we'd have a thing where the heaviness came from the bass, but the guitars weren't necessarily going to play those low chords as well because... There was a sort of chiminess that we wanted to get out the guitars, which for me definitely came to listening to bands like Fugazi, where the guitars aren't playing the meat and veg normally. They're doing something more melodic or something yeah, halfway up the neck. So and in that way, without even really knowing what we were doing, we would stumble upon guitar parts that were playing... Some quite cool inversions, as I now know they're called. <laughs> where, <laughs> where you know, you're starting a chord not from the root note, you're starting it from the third or from the fifth or whatever, and you're letting the bass play the roots. And that sound and that brightness and that jangliness of the guitars is what we gravitated towards. But yeah, it worked when we were writing, when it was instant, and when it had purpose, and we didn't let our brains get in the way of that purpose. That's when early on things weren't the best. So the, the, all the songs we wrote that were great early on were written in about as long as it takes to play them. Mm. Because nothing. the more things that got in the way of it, the more the likely there was that we'd fuck it up.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> I, I think...
0: We're back now with Andy, who speaks about the early days of the band and the progression towards releasing their first EP. Quite early on, you recorded the demo and apparently only three copies were handed out initially, one of which ended up at Kerrang! Uh
4: yes. You know mm. it is so rare that I don't even have a copy. I think Jamie <laughs> Lendman's got a copy somehow. Or he's got he seems to be I don't know. Right? Who's th- who's that? Sorry. Jamie Lindman. Hmm. Oh, is he? Well, it was the singer of Reuben, and now the solo singer.
0: Okay, okay, yeah. Just that name hasn't come up yet. That's interesting. So he has a copy on. It's a, a
4: little trivia for, about Jamie Lemon. Actually, when the band first got together, the first actual gig that the band played, I didn't play it <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because it was a Christmas. It's like a New Year's Eve party thing down in Exeter. We we, we played Exeter a load of times before at the Cavern um as floor so it was like we were we you know we, we weren't new to the place you know so yeah, yeah. but like um at the time like um uh, my wife is basically from a country called slovakia mm. and uh one thing we used to do a lot is go over to see the family at christmas and it'd already been booked and then they were like oh we need to we've got the gig sorted." it was like oh crap so interestingly <laughs> enough being the sort of the uh the sweetheart that he is like um, Jamie was like, "Okay, I'll I'll do that one gig," and I was like, "Oh, okay." So I basically lent him all my gear, and he learned all the songs that we had at the time, and he played the gig. So mm. that was the first kind of hundred reasons show, <laughs> and I wasn't even part of it, ironically enough. Like my first gig wasn't until January when I'd come back, and I think that was in like Kingston,
0: I think it was. So moving on from Jamie, here's another name from the past: Simon Williams. Bear's Panda, yes. Yeah, do you, uh, do you recall him at the blood. gig? Do you recall meeting him?
4: I can't remember the first time I met him, but mm. you know, I think it might have been we were playing at the Barfly, or which is now Monarch. I think it's yes. the Monarch. <laughs> was the Barfly Camden yeah. Barfly, basically? <laughs> but uh I'm pretty sure you came to that, and yeah, we, we, we you know. he sat, you know, I think we took us for a pint, and we had a nice sit down, and it was it was all very nice and. Yeah, he's a lovely bloke. You know, I uh pick up to all the people at Fierce Panda. So
0: Was this as exciting for you at the time? Still very young. I mean, I know you haven't released <laughs> a debut yet or anything, but like, you know, Fierce Panda were quite a known entity at this time. They weren't a no name India or anything. Like it was it was good recognition to have.
4: Oh god, yeah, yeah, god, yeah. Like, um, it was uh, <laughs> but, you know, this this is the thing. Like we actually had like one label interesting when we were in floor and I won't digress who it was mm. because there's no point. <laughs> but all I can say is that the deal was absolute toilet. <laughs> and so we were literally not even at the time. We we're like, no, but then obviously when we started doing the hundred reasons thing and like fierce Panda, have been known fierce Panda for doing stuff like they yeah. They done loads of
0: really cool stuff. The new wave of really, new wave and all that. Yeah.
4: Yeah. All all that lark, And mm-hmm. it was, it was all, it's all great really great like I really it was uh, wonderful for to talk to him so when he actually said to us I really want to put out an EP we were like brilliant this is amazing like you know just, you know because none of us started this band. we all started this band with the intention of playing gigs having a good time and just enjoying yourself with no preconceptions about actually being like pro in any sort of way so for someone like Simon and fierce panda to come to us and say I really want to do an EP with you just like it did kind of what well, blew my tiny little mind at the time anyway so and it's you know very appreciative and you know it's, it's yeah it's a good little EP that we did there so but it's kind of it, you can very much tell how much of a stop gap it was between the floor days and hundred reasons as a lot of people know it like i hyperletic like sort of like ideas basically you can tell it's a lot more sort of metallic in a way if you know what i mean
0: everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too You've just heard mention of him. Now let's hear it straight from the panda's mouth. It's Simon Williams, owner of the Mighty Fierce Panda. So the first thing then I want to ask about, I just want you to tell us a little bit about Fierce Panda because you know I've been reading about the history of the label in your I must say incredible book that just came out Pandemonium how not to run a record label great snapshot of a lot of the stuff we've been talking about in this episode that era you know so many bands that I've touched on to with Colin and Larry like crop up in here and it's kind of fascinating to see that but just kind of explain to us how Fierce Panda came about from what I gather it was kind of you were a music journalist enemy journalist and the name was kind of a joke really because you only assumed you were going to do one release is that right
1: absolutely yes yeah we were kind of the least cool people on the planet i.e music journalists and we <laughs> decided to set up the least cool thing on the other planet which was a, an indie record company run by music journalists <laughs> and it was um it was all designed as a tribute to a scene called new wave of new wave which we'd invented which ostensibly revolved around two punk rock bands called smash and these animal men. And, um, yeah, so we just thought, we just released one record. And and so we gave ourselves a bit of a daft name thinking, you know, it's not going to matter in 28 years time. So I imagine my surprise when 28 years later, we're still here, still called fierce Panda. Um, and the scene kind of didn't last that long. It was a bit like a magnesium flash, but it did involve lots of, uh, lots of young men taking enormous amounts of drugs and wearing Adidas trainers in Camden Town about four minutes before Britpop. So I think John Harris, one of my partners in crime, actually describes New Wave and New Wave as Britpop without the tunes, which was kind of a bit cruel, but possibly not that far away from the truth.
0: And, you know, I would love to one day for there to be a Fierce Panda podcast because it's just been so good reading for this history. And I'd heard of you guys, and then obviously for 100 reasons I became more cognizant. But, you know, for people listening who aren't aware of you, you know, Coldplay, uh, bands like Seafood that we mentioned, Keen, Embrace, Steph Cab for Cutie, Air Traffic, Art Brut, 100 Reasons, obviously, as well. Wibbling Rivalry, the iconic... Liam and Noel argument that charted in '95,
1: like it's it, it's quite it's quite mind-boggling, really. I mean, looking back, there are some things I've forgotten we've done, but but um, but overall, you know, it, it's such a, you know, you, you kind of every every release was like a little snapshot, so so you remember it from those times, and most of the for, for the most part these were the really good times with bands you know when when they get their first ever reviews their first radio plays obviously their first release and generally the mood in the camp is kind of fairly positive you know I avoided second album syndrome by most of these people so I kind of felt I understood early on that I wasn't necessarily the greatest AR man of all time because I wasn't working long projects with these bands I was just basically just taking them down the pub and and just getting them on the radio for the first time, but there was the, and that that was the kind of common scene. I think the thing that defined us was probably you know the, the one surprise during the book was that I thought that we just did a few kind of random EPs in 1994, mm. and then we found Placebo and um and just kind of worked out. From there on in how to do it when in fact going through the book i realized that um 94 we did all these eps with kind of um you know ash and super grass and green day and lush and all those kind of bands and then in 1995 we we just went completely punk rock sort of stuff like ligament and joey fat you know real kind of left field stuff right and um and placebo it wasn't until 96 that's when that's when we kind of started to sort of suss out what we really wanted to do and what we sussed out was that we didn't really know what we were going to do so i think the two pivotal releases were probably kenicky and three colors red and kenicky was just you know very very john peel tastic and um, kind of sprightly indie pop from sunderland and then three colors red was obviously you know incredibly karang tastic i think alan mcgee signed them from us to creation oh. And said they were the new Sex Pistols, um, at which point they kind of tried to prove that by supporting the old Sex Pistols at Finsbury Park. Oh. Those were great days. But yeah, um, but yeah Three, three Colours Red gave me an absolute, gave me an absolute shoe in with Kerrang!, which obviously lasted all the way through to um, 100 Reasons and beyond
0: now you know i'm a massive like junkie really for like the archive and like lists of things and everything that came out in a certain period and one of the things that i love about the book and right in the end is you have like an index of all the releases and you know i've poured over it and a lot of these you know majority of these bands i've never heard of but i love musical history it's like you know you go back and they're not even on spotify or if they are they had 20 monthly you know whatever but the point i'm trying to get across is in the 28 years and counting of Fierce Panda, there have been you know so many releases. And in the back of the book, in the Q&A, you actually name 100 Reasons as having your favorite single of all of those singles with Cerebra. Like,
1: um, what do you remember about first meeting them, coming across them? It was a, a Kitty show, right? It was, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it was just that, yeah, they're playing Highbury Goraz, which was just around the corner from our office on Holloway Road. So that was convenient. Mm. Um and I was introduced to them by Sarah Neve, her press council, who was doing RPR at the time, and she had a tip off. She she had really really good Koran connections, and she had this tip off that this band were doing there, you know, on their really really early gigs, and um and I just thought they were absolutely brilliant, just kind of really, you know, they came. I saw I saw it more like math rock than metal, yeah. to be honest with you, it was incredibly concise and um and just brilliantly you know brilliantly rehearsed and and completely showbiz but um but in a kind of you know kind of very affable uh, welcoming kind of way you know there, it, was a, it was a rock show but it wasn't put on by rock stars necessarily and yeah we met them a few times and especially down in kingston and they you know they're very very confident and laid back and um you know knew exactly well as far as like could ascertain, they they kind of knew what they were doing which was um which is pretty impressive after like five gigs.
0: You say in the book, yeah, that you you describe them as math rock, as you say, and uh, living up to their tag as the UK's answer to at the drive-in and also mentioning Colin's excitable yes. hair as well, which yeah. <laughs> yeah, is, uh, is certainly of note. And um, I, I read that you offered them the EP on the spot, like after the gig,
1: like straight away. Is that right? Oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those were those days where yeah, yeah you wouldn't mess around. Yeah, mm. the same tactic. You know, if they, if they were good, you know, you make sure that you know this is before the internet. You know, if you didn't if you didn't nab them there and then, there was every chance you'd never speak to them again, or you know, or not till the next gig. By which point, some other label might have stepped in. So. Yeah, for, for them and for Keen and for Coldplay, it was always on the night. You'd, you'd go straight, so you just you just organise it straight away, and um, and make sure they couldn't escape your clutches.
0: And that was recorded with John Hannon, is that right? Of uh, Understanding?
1: I think it was. Yes, mm. yes. Um, I mean, they had a very good management team, so we didn't get too involved in the A and R process. It was basically, you know, they had the plan in place, which is, you know, it's very rare for a, a lot of bands on our level. And those early days to actually have the confidence to go, this is this is going to be EP one. You yes. know, there there are a few a few bands that we did who who never who never made it to release number two. So it's kind, <laughs> it kind of it's kind of a bold statement saying we're going to be here for longer than six months. Exactly. And but yeah,
0: for people who you know maybe not aware, EP one is Cerebra, Slow Learner, and Clear Flawed. And then EP two, they're with Columbia. Like you know, you said kind of we were speaking off air and stuff that you know this is very much a gestation thing Fierce Panda and you know they they go on into the big wide world sort of thing what like how did that work did did Columbia have to speak to you at
1: all was that not a thing or no I kind of you know it's occasionally some majors did try and talk to us and and um you know kind of create some kind of relationship but for the most part they, they just saw us as absolute indie idiots and um and it's kind of you know thanks but no thanks you know we're, we're the big boys are in charge now which was fine I mean I just always wanted I just always saw those first six months of a band's career as that chance to just basically have fun you know they could they could get their records to the radio and to the press and do those early gigs without without any pressure on them you know as soon as you sign as soon as you sign to a Parlophone or a columbia you know, as we all know, the clock starts ticking. So it's kind of, you know, you better get yourself, you know, as I said, even by the time they arrived at Fierce Panda, sort of 100 reasons were pretty sure of where they were going. They had their sound and they had their image and they had their visuals or, the, you know, in terms of artwork already sorted. So, you know, they're ahead of the curve already. But, you, you know, you, you can't do you can't do too much before you sign to a major label. You know, if you sign to a major label and you haven't got all the songs written for your debut album, then you're basically just wasting your time. You know, you'll get dropped after 18 months.
0: You mentioned as well in the brief section that you speak about the band, uh, you know, clearly in jest as well. I know there's no bitterness, but you talk about being at the Kerrang Awards, sitting at their table, watching them go on stage, to collect their award and then thanking everyone but you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things. Maybe they just thought it would just be embarrassing or... You know, it's it was, it's weird because he's sitting over there. But I yeah, just, I did think. I mean, I did actually laugh heartily. Yeah, 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 of course. And it was, you know, it was such a brilliant moment for them, and it was still such a brilliant moment for us. But I did think that was funny. But yeah, but I did. I was sitting at their table though, and drinking all the free booze. So I suspect that, in the, <laughs> you know, that was that was probably the, the best result in the long term. And um, and you know, certainly never held it against them whatsoever.
0: When people talk about fierce panda, obviously, you know, they speak about the Keens and the Coldplays, etc. But fair to say 100 Reasons one of the biggest successes to come from you know that imprint like they had a great career throughout the 2000s
1: Yes yeah and they also had um, you know and the thing about Fierce Panda was it kind of gave them a slight the boundaries were a lot more blurred back then so mm. you know uh, pointing out earlier on about you know the fact that we were so wild and crazy we did Kinnicky and Three Colours Red within the same run of releases um, back then wasn't actually that remarkable I remember I remember Hundred Reasons did a terrific gig with the Idlewild at Sefton Bush Empire. Nowadays that probably you know the whole idea would be ludicrous, but back then you know Idlewild was kerrang friendly as Hundred Reasons were, yeah. and ditto for bands like Seafood. You know they could, mm. they were kind of like they they, they touched those sort of emo, Sonic Youthy kind of angles as well. And I think there was a really good, you know, Hundred Reasons certainly came from a proper DIY scene, didn't they, down in Kingston? And they came down, you know, the whole the whole history of that whole the whole Area of Farnborough and all that we'd grown up with bands like Mega City 4 that come through there the generation previous to that and I remember their management being especially strong on strong on punk rock you know ethics you know there was a really good there was a really good sense of community which is um, you know which is obviously absolutely vital if a band wants to get anywhere because no one could be successful on their own
0: So you watched proudly then as the debut came out and then they you know massive gigs in Reading and Leeds etc it must have been uh, must has been nice to see them. But I guess you've had that
1: experience with so many bands, haven't you? Yeah, I suppose. Well, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, f- sometimes you don't pay any attention yeah. um, because you're just too busy, you know, back in the boondocks trying to find the next thing. Um, I mean, I've only just recently re-engaged with Coldplay after about 20 years with, um, yeah. you know, inviting me to Wembley and all that. So I think there's something oh, in the book really? that must, that's, that that's must have touched a nerve with them. Yeah, And then... Um, you know, but yeah, I haven't got like a, I haven't got a massive record collection. I haven't got, I haven't got all the placebo albums or anything like that. I have my favourite little, my favourite little moments, which probably goes back to the snapshots without, you know, without sounding like an arse. yeah. Um, so I think I can safely say that Cerebra would be my favorite 100 Reasons track if it is you know, if it's gonna be my favourite Fierce Panda track as well. But they were just it was just um, it was just tremendous fun. I remember when they were doing things like four gigs in one night, you know, because obviously Tank, the manager, had lived through the Ned's atomic dustbin era of just, you know, just just doing what the fuck you want whenever you want to do it. And it's kind of, you know, I think what were, were they supporting A at uh, the electric ballroom about half past six in the evening so they could squeeze in you know, another another three shows before. By the, you know, I think they headlined the Falcon that night. That's, that kind of that stuff is absolutely brilliant to have that whole work ethic. And I think that mm-hmm. you know, looking through Wiki the other day, and it's just just a, it's just I mean, they just did. I mean, what four albums in seven years or yeah. something? That's <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. unbelievable, isn't it? That, that is absolutely yeah. phenomenal for any band, especially but yeah. especially being that raucous and that loud and touring mm. that hard you know, they must have been knackered after, you know, by come 2007, 2008. I can confirm they were, yeah, having having recorded Yes, them, yeah, they, they Absolutely,
0: <laughs> but of course they were. But yeah. That's the yeah, impression
1: they got off Wiki, yeah.
0: <laughs> so, um, it, you know, it's so interesting, really, The you know, the, the relationship you had with the band early on, and this is where the first release was, and, it, and it's so great that it was on Fierce Panda, you know, this iconic label that has so much history attached to it. And now back to Colin for a lengthy section focusing on the growth of the band in the 2000s, getting on the radio, being on the NME tour despite still working for BT, getting hammered at the Kerrang Awards, and of course, meeting Blair MacDonald. The the atmosphere that you were coming into at that time, like one of the dominant forces was new metal. And you guys have spoken about that quite a bit. You know, Paul has said that everyone was sick of new metal and people wanted hard music, but not something that gave them a headache and you know you very much feel like you're butting against that kind of like you know GNR and Motley Crue to a certain extent was this just something you just completely disregarded I mean obviously your music doesn't really have any elements of that apart from the kind of bludgeoning nature but you know there's no DJ scratches or
2: or rapping or anything like that you know I remember a friend once phoned me up because I think something like either Karang or Metal Hammer did like a new metal list and I think we ended up in that list or something I was like easily like maybe 10 years ago or something which I thought was quite funny but I think the thing for us is that you know I didn't mind some new metal bands I liked Corn. sure um first record was sadly for me personally production wise has not aged well Mm. but it's got some great stuff on it and some really inventive stuff um I think after that I kind of got a bit fed up with Corn. I was still listening to lots of sort of hardcore bands and stuff. So for me, that's where a lot of it was. Um, So when you like listen to bands like I think Mudvayne and Cold Chamber and all these other bands that were kind of mucked in, I wouldn't really ever sort of put Deftones in that bracket because I think they always kind of just did their own thing. And I think that what they've done as a band is incredible um, just in terms of moving away from the whole thing. They've, They've evolved I suppose the best way to say it is that we weren't concerned about new metal because we weren't thinking about it. We were just writing mm-hmm. our own music that we liked. And I think that even whether you care about bands or like bands like Lid Biscuit and stuff like that, they it kind of did still sort of pave the way a little bit because heavy music was on the radio and it was getting into the it was getting to number one. It was getting in, you know, it was topping the charts and stuff in the UK. So you can bang on about it as much as you like and terms of that but people are going to like what they're going to like and i think that what new metal did was just open up the radio to a little bit more you know people listening to heavy music on the radio and you can't sort of knock that which arguably means that we've got a bit of a sort of fighting chance but i think something that's well, running something that's sort of at least from my understanding that's sort of quite industry-based we'd actually had a song sort of played on radio one on the rock show mm. and i remember we had a rehearsal underneath the peel whenever we all got back i'd say early it's about half 11. i sat around in my shared house with my mates and it was 12 o'clock and and rock show came on and then phil alexander plays your, um, your demo you know and if you've got if you've got radio on your side early on then a record label can look at that and go, well, that's part of the battle, because even though we're all into streaming and, and all that kind of thing, that's that's the way. But these days, there's still a lot of power in radio. Um, and and back then, obviously, it was even more powerful. So getting that sort of slot and having the editor of Chrome magazine banging on about you means you've got support from the biggest rock magazine in the country at the time. You've got the radio, Radio wanna play in it. So even though labels hadn't expressed an interest at the time, you know, they, you know, there's part of the battle where they want to play in them and Kerrang! love them. All right, we've got something to work with here. So those sorts of things sort of combine a little bit. Definitely waffling a bit right now, but yeah.
0: No, 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 it's fascinating. And quickly on the on the landscape, on the scene at the time as well, because I've been delving back into that and finding a lot of bands, actually, I've never really listened to that I'm really enjoying. Bands like Seafood. Um, yeah, seafood were amazing. Yeah, really good band. Do you remember Kay, C-A-Y, Nature Creates Freaks, The name definitely rings a bell. Yeah, they were like apparently all they really did was support feed. I'm not saying that in a dismissive way, but like they didn't really get that popular. But they have this amazing song called Nature Creates Freaks. you have bands like Mogwai and Idlewild in in Scotland and stuff like that so you know early 2000 then you're building a good live reputation is this this is about the time when you caught the attention of Fierce Panda Records is that right Simon Williams
2: yeah Yeah, so that's when we did the kitty show at the garage Mm. in London and I think that was I think the moment where Simon you know was going to put out an EP and I believe we went bowling (laughs) if I remember correctly um which is a fun time because Simon's just a lovely man and he's still doing it now. Um, and he's still got the passion for it. Um, incredible human being. I haven't spoken to him in a long, long while, but I, I still hear stories about him. And a friend of mine was, yeah, I've went out with Simon the other night and, you know, just really glad to know that he's still doing what he's doing, but yeah, they got interested and, you know, First Panda, I think they did Placebo's first single, Coldplay's first single. Yeah. Um, Seafood, I think, was signed to Fierce Panda like, ah. as a full-time signing. Whereas, you know, some bands were just there as that sort of stepping stone label. So, if if Simon Williams likes you and wants to put a bit of money behind you to to get your single out there, that's that's good enough for a lot of people to go, oh, okay, this this band's doing something cool. You know, it was it was a real honour, I think, actually, to to have Simon be interested in us and and put out our first single. And
0: so. That single uh, obviously led to the EP 1, which was your was your first one. And, like, it feels to me, Colin, I, I don't know if you feel the same way, like, sonically, you're almost fully formed. Like, like it feels like the, the songs that were on that EP could definitely have been on Ideas Above Our Station. Like, it just feels like you kind of had compositionally the ideas in place really if i guess what i'm saying is it feels like a hundred reasons where a lot of early eps of other bands for instance coldplay's ep brothers and sisters on fierce panda is a bit slight compared to what they would do. i mean okay coldplay are a bit slight in general but you know what i'm saying like it wasn't as developed
2: perhaps but it, it felt like it was you on on that ep like from the off I, th- I think it was but those those tracks i think once we sort of write in more and those those first Three songs, two songs. Three it's songs. Two songs. It's free, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to remember that. You know, they're, they're okay and I still like them. Um, but those were sort of the first songs we've written. So we hadn't sort of really developed, you know, as much as we sort of had done by the time the first record was sort of actually being recorded. So I would I would argue that those tracks were great as like a first EP. It's a statement of intent. This is who we are. But I don't think they would have made the record.
0: <laughs> no, I think Clear Floored is, that's my favourite. That's the one that I think could have been on the record. I just think that's absolutely like tune, like it's bludgeoning. Yeah, because
2: I mean, when you look at things like Gone Too Far and stuff, you can sort of see that there's, you know, and the thing for me is I, I like I like things heavy. I mm. do like heavy music. Um, so it was quite cool. So I, I, I see where you're coming from with that. But I think that was kind of, Again, it wasn't necessarily something that was, I would call, a a proper representation of us. Whereas I think, obviously, when I listened to sort of Cerebra, that was kind of us. Whereas Clear kind of wasn't. I think it was still sort of what you might call sort of leftovers from the writing style from the previous band before sort of Larry joined, rather than This Is Hundred Reasons. So the cover to the EP,
0: interestingly, I saw is... Is it like the Royal Festival Hall or something? It seems to anticipate the Lloyd's building cover somewhat, at least to me.
2: Well, I think the whole idea, which was a, a management idea sort of back in the time, was to kind of link things sort of thematically with sort of important buildings. Mm. So it kind of just went from there. And, and the thing, as well, is when we started to get, you know, or into discussions with, with Columbia at the time, they were very um, very good at sort of understanding i think sort of where it was all sort of going and i think that what we were doing was sort of leading into it um and again i'm just trying to think back to the times a long time ago <laughs> yeah. people um but i think just the building thing was always sort of quite cool so that happened um <laughs> and then we sort of ended up sort of taking it all the way through to sort of the album campaign and stuff and everything yeah. as well so you know yeah You know, I don't think there's anything from my perspective, there's not sort of some sort of deep meaning behind it. I think it's just that whenever you're sort of, you know, trying to connect with people or do something, you know, you need to have sort of a theme to what you're doing. And that was the theme at the time.
0: So progressing through 2000, then we get to October 2000, where you're on the Enemy tour um, supporting Idlewild with Turn on there as well. We mentioned Idlewild before, like, you know, Was it surreal for you, this kind of fairly early on in the career of the band, you know, considering that the first gig really had been Turner Millennium? And here you are towards the end of 2000 on the NME tour, you know, a huge tour at the time. It's been amazing.
2: Um, It's really funny because I just don't recall it being an NME tour. Right, Um, right, right. I I remember the tour, but I don't remember it being an (laughs) NME tour. Um, But If it was great, amazing. Um, I think for me, you know, we were still working day jobs Mm. so we hadn't quit we hadn't signed you know we weren't in a position where we could you know have a go at this full time so it was great fun the Idlewild guys are some of the most wonderful human beings I think we ever had the privilege to tour with the turn guys again just unbelievable human beings and just amazing I mean I liked Idlewild and I think when I toured with them and stuff, I became a fan, you know. Um the remote part, I think, was kind of one of my favorite sort of rock band albums at that time. It was so good. Um and they were just great. Um yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't have, I couldn't have any issues. I mean, that tour was just brilliant, really good fun great people but you know some shows you'd have to book a day off because you have to travel quite far, and sometimes you come back in the middle of the night go to work the next day so it's quite it's don't get me wrong I I definitely wouldn't sort of call it complaining because that's just totally the wrong phrase but it is quite tiring so when you're doing that it's quite hard sometimes I think to sort of live in the moment whereas you can look back retrospectively and say that was amazing that was one of the coolest times of my life. But you only realise that a little bit later on. <laughs> um, because when you're in it, you're like, I've just driven from work, I've got four hours. And yeah. I remember we we had a show. I do remember we had a show. I think it was in Manchester. And it was problematic, like, getting there. And I think we literally just plumped the gear on stage and played. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's, that's what it was. So, you know, I, I think what's really quite funny sometimes is you know that you know there there is a glamorous side to to the the lifestyle and what you're doing but to people on the outside you could sit there and go wow those guys are supporting idle while that's amazing so you have to jump four hours from london in terrible traffic really annoyed it's raining you've just got the gear out the van we've got a plonk on stage play for half an hour then leave because we've got work tomorrow (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it's it's always kind of that juxtaposition which i find quite amusing um well, what were you doing at the time of interest i worked at a bt call center oh
0: okay that's crazy though like, well, yeah, I don't like mean, rock star, it's great
2: well you're kind of helping people with your phone bill with their phone bills yeah. and stuff like that and you know it wasn't the worst job in the world it was something that i could um utilize to my own ends and again the people there were sort of nicer to me than they needed to be because you Mm -hmm. just go up there and just go to the manager and just go hi I'm really sorry um is it okay if I leave three hours early today I've got to drive to Leicester (laughs) or or, or Leeds or something (laughs) like that um and they were sort of like oh okay then no problem whatever so they were really kind in fairness and I completely took the piss out of it um but you know, that's, that's the thing, really something I always kind of try to sort of say to anybody that's trying to do something that they really want to do. And I don't mean being in a band or whatever, but if you find something that you really, really want to do, you kind of have to try not to let real life get in the way too much Mm. uh, because you still got your bills to pay. You still got some responsibilities, you know, you want to come back and you have still got a room to live in or whatever, but generally you need to you know, if the job you're in is not the focus of your career, you can't let that job take over. Yes. Um, so that was the thing for me. I didn't let the job take over. <laughs> you know, we went to the Karang Awards and got absolutely hammered, all of us. I mean, the Andy was, like, thrown up in the street on the way back and we all crashed at Larry's house. And I had to be at work for, like, 11 o'clock we were all severely hungover, but we've been the went...
0: worst BT advice ever. Like exactly, I don't know, was just oh,
2: well Um, you went there, you got in, you went to work, so you could earn your money. Because if you didn't work, you didn't get paid.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So you go and do that, and you were at the Krang Wars the night before. You know. Well,
0: that's the thing. You, you know, you were getting cool. this recognition. You won at the Kerrang Awards. You won Best New Band. Mm-hmm. You, you beat My Vitriol, Raging Speedhorn, and Muse. You were going Yeah, I know.
2: The... They're all probably laughing now going, uh uh-huh.
0: <laughs> um... I mean, you know, I think, I think yet yeah, again, it kind of plays into what I was saying before. Like, it, you know, I'm not saying it wasn't really hard work, of course, and you put loads of hours in and effort in, but it seemed like you were getting it back. You know, I mean, you were winning these awards. You were on these tours. Like, it seemed to be going quite well early on.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But I think, and this is not to disrespect anybody that had won Best New British Brand, a Band <laughs> Kerrang Awards previously, but a lot of them didn't really do much afterwards. Sure. But I think that the, the landscape at the time was a lot more receptive. I think with something like Muse, I think Muse were already doing all right. Mm. You know, we went on tour with those guys and it was amazing. Yeah. And they were already doing. 5,000-seater venues around Europe. So I think from Kerrang's perspective, they probably felt like they didn't really maybe need it. Mm. I think Raging Speedhorn, like super friends, like the Andes actually in that band at the moment playing bass. Um, and they were always great. Those guys were just so much fun to be around. I know they kind of had a bit of a reputation or whatever, but they just were cool, super cool. Loads of shows like festivals and stuff that we did with them hanging out. It could be argued that maybe they weren't sort of maybe mainstream enough to be able to go to the next level because of the type of music they were playing. Mm. Um, And I think as well with a band like sort of My Vitriol. And again, I know some, uh, Ravi, like lovely, lovely people, really nice people. But at the same time, potentially in a similar sort of position to muse. So maybe not necessarily needing the exposure and the leg up. Um, and that's just me sort of analysing it. No, kind no. Of, kind of right now, actually. Yeah. <laughs> kind yeah. Of analyzing it right now. <laughs> um, so you can look at those sorts of things and go, well, I can see why maybe they, they put us up for it. I could see why that was the case, because I think that you know there was a commercial viability in what we were doing, and we probably needed the leg up Hmm. More than music, my virtual did. Let's talk a little
0: bit about <laughs> uh, <very> analytical. Uh, <laughs> I'm not. An this, what, this is
2: what people are listening
0: for. No, this is great. So uh, let's talk about Columbia and signing with Columbia. I mean, it's kind of insane, really. What a label! The Clash, the Chambers Brothers, janice Joplin, Santana, a hundred reasons. Like, how did this come about? You know, in short form.
2: I think it came about with our, our manager at the time, who knew the md um so he could sort of get the meeting and then i think that you know when you're doing stuff and you're getting recognition you know it's an HR person's job to know what's going on if you don't know what's going on you, you're not doing your job properly so we've been on the radar and i think we were kind of in a position where we were sort of ready to be signed we got offered a couple of sort of development deals. I remember Warners were like, you know, we'll develop you for six months and then we'll see what happens. But we we're all like, no, we don't want to do that. We either sign or we don't, you know, we're not going to give up our jobs for six months. And then you turn around and go, nah, um, so it was that. Um, and I think with Columbia, it was just right. I mean, the guy that was running Columbia at the times guy called Blair McDonald, just still a really good friend now. Um, literally like at the time of us doing this, which is what, June 2022, you know, went out to dinner with him just literally like three weeks ago. Mm. You know, he's a wonderful, wonderful human being and he cares about songs and he cares about artists and he was a real credit to Columbia at the time.
0: And let's hear now from the wonderful Blair MacDonald, we talk about his origins in the music industry, and then get onto him discovering Hundred Reasons and signing them to Columbia, and the work up to the first album. So you began, in terms of the industry, from what I gather, in 1986 at the Mao Room at Virgin Records in London. <laughs> Crikey, yeah, that goes back a ways.
5: Yeah, that was that was how I. Well, I was um, I was a drummer in, in various bands in Scotland, but when mm. I came down to London, uh, that was. That was where I managed to um, get lucky, I guess, and uh, landed a job in the mailroom. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, I, I uh, wrote letters to half a dozen recording studios and half a dozen record companies. When I came down from um, Glasgow, I, I was staying in a, in, a, in a flat with three music journalists two of whom were from Scotland and, and one was from down here. And they would managed to get a house together in Woodgreen and I managed to bunk on the floor hmm. for about six weeks. And then they started to say, you know what, well, Blair, you've got to uh, start, either start to pay some rent or <laughs> whatever. And that was what prompted me to to to, uh, to write the letters. And I got very nice, you know, proper written letters uh, signed by the head of human resort or personnel or whatever it was at the time saying Thank you very much you don't have any experience so uh we'll keep your name on file including the one from a woman called josephine Nestor, who was head of personnel at virgin records when it was on the harrow road in uh, west london saying exactly that thanks very much you've got no experience we'll keep your name on file and that afternoon the guy who was working in the mail room came in and handed his notice in and literally my letter was the first one on the top of the <laughs> pile and um she called the, the phone in uh, in in Lindhurst Road in Woodgreen and uh, said, "Are you Blair? And do you want to come in and have a chat?" And, and it was you know it was that kind of yeah. I mean, it sounds so old world now to 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 kind of talk about getting a job that way. But anyway, that's the that's the long story. Yeah, I got lucky and got a job in the mail room where we used to keep copies of all the vinyl records for sending out to journalists for for review and uh, and uh, franking the mail to
0: be honest. Mm. So going from one type of HR to another, from human resources to (laughs) hundred reasons. Very good, very good. It just came to me, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But just before we get to the band, like, you know, who were you before you met the band? So obviously we started here in 86, and now we're sort of pushing forward, like 14, 15 years to like 2000 Mm. and stuff like that. So what was your role at that point before you became cognizant of the band themselves?
5: Yeah, so so my career had gone in various different directions, mostly in music publishing, to be honest. But then um, in 1999, um, I was made managing director of Columbia Records, the UK arm um, mm. of Columbia Records, which was obviously a huge. Uh, it was very exciting. It was a, it was a, it was a serious uh, honour at the time to be kind of running that label, obviously, which covers everything from from Bob Dylan to Beyoncé, everything yeah. in between. Um, uh, and so I started at Columbia Records uh, in Great Marlborough Street, the Sony the Sony building in Great Marlborough Street in September 1999. I think it was September or October 1999, um, having been uh, with Sony's publishing company for many years before that. Mm. And, uh, you know, set about uh trying to add to the roster from 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 u k domestic u k talent and uh really that was my i had my own a and r team but uh it was hundred reasons manager tank who who came and uh talked to me about hundred reasons played me from memory played me the fierce panda e p yeah. which i think had come out already by that time or was certainly ready to come out um And I loved it as as soon as I
0: heard it and and asked him if I could come along to the next show. And, you know, they themselves have said that you were so pivotal in that decision to sign and and stuff like that. Like, what is the kind of beginning of that relationship? Like when you're at the show, is it, you know, are you just kind of speaking to them after? Are you really kind of speaking about the music? Are you appealing to them more on a personal level? Like, I mean, I'm just very naive about the mechanics of how this relationship begins. So like, how does that start? Like when, when you're actually wanting to work with them? For me, honestly, it started.
5: For me, it's about. It, it was about um, making. I suppose making a decision in my own mind. Was this a band that I felt strongly we could uh, a have some fun with, uh, but also um, do you know you know deliver for and and uh, and, and help them help them grow, help them build their career and build their profile and I, I, I you know I remember standing at the garage, it was the garage in Islington. Um, mm-hmm. And it must have been. I don't know late 2000 maybe winter 2000 or something like that. Um, I just just seeing by that stage obviously they had a great following they had uh, uh, some some really fantastic fans and the whole room was bouncing and um, I knew already that I that, that they were they were good songwriters but when I saw everything delivered uh, to to uh, a a kind of an audience that were just uh, ready for it I, I i thought yeah we this is this is definitely something that i want to be involved with and that, that i think columbia can be involved with to some effect um and then it was a case of yeah i mean saying hi the the i suppose the process is you start to build hmm. a personal relationship with the members of the band and the team around them management lawyer and and get into talking about what the structure of a uh a record deal would look like in terms of and it's quite i guess it's it's changed a lot in the 20 years since that's happened but um how how, is it how is it how what's the best way to develop and present a band like that in terms of staged releases and, and 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 engaging with the fan base and growing that fan base not just through releasing records but obviously touring and, and, and everything else. Uh, But yeah, spent time with the band, uh, various nights in the crowbar uh, in uh, West London, amongst other, you know, salubrious locations uh, and realized, you know, that they were, they were, um, they all meant what they said and were, were uh, straightforward and, and good guys. Uh, And
0: it all just, it, it all just felt right. It was an interesting time then musically, wasn't it? This kind of era of like 2000, like the sort of turn of the century, you know, kind of post-alternative, but also tipping into that new metal world as well. Like where did you kind of see them settling in that atmosphere, in that environment? You know, honestly, I'd, I'd love to say I had a, a clear picture yeah. or, 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 or
5: seeing them attaching to some new new rock fashion that was coming through genuinely and, and as as, I, as i've always been it just it's it tends to be songs that move me yeah. and that's in any genre um but but unless there's good songs uh I, I i really struggle to get enthusiastic about an artist or a band um uh so it was it was it was knowing that they had songs and the, the songs that they continued to write were of a super high standard um so there was the kind of what did they call it the new wave of british rock or something that was happening yeah. around that time um that honestly that was never really a factor in my thinking i mean don't get me wrong i think it was helpful uh, at the time because it it made opportunities in terms of profile and 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 and, and, a, and, a, and a, another reason to to have Press and and media talking about hundred reasons, but it was never it was never really a consideration in my mind. I just I just knew they were a great band uh, in ev- in every sense, songs, and performance, the individual members of the band. You know, Colin jumping up and down, uh, kind of giving it everything on the front of the stage, and Larry yeah. doing what he does, and uh, so I you know I, it was just the full package. So it was um, it was more a kind of instinctive reaction for me rather than. Uh, considered intellectual reaction to 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 pick up a
0: band that were part of the the new wave of british rock you know you speak about how so much time has passed and you know it's so different now and it's really fascinating looking at the kind of slow gradual process by which the band were developed because they had the ep two and three um Mm -hmm. underneath the banner going going into the record as well that development process then that kind of working on the spirit of the band i suppose the gestalt of it or, or whatever you want to call it like you know i mean to what extent were you meeting with them to what extent were you discussing things Was it very much them taking the lead i mean it feels that way it feels like you know it is their kind of hundred reasons is their vision i
5: know? listen i wouldn't i wouldn't challenge that it was very much uh them and again that's that's them and, and their team coming to me to saying this is what we think we should do, and certainly in terms of uh, making the record, uh, song choice was never really difficult because um, they were they were writing at a high standard. So there was there was always that was always an easy conversation to have. Um, in terms of bringing Dave Sardy on board as the producer, mm. I, you know, in, in in truth, when Tank, the manager, came to me about that, high didn't know Dave sorry, and so I had to do my homework a little bit. I didn't, I I I soon realized he'd been involved in in a, I think in an engineering capacity in, in some fairly significant records before that. But um but but yeah, I mean it, it was quite easy from that, uh, from the point of view of those, those musical creative conversations because the band had uh, a good idea of where they wanted to go and who they wanted to do it with and what it should sound like so i i didn't have to get involved particularly going forward once once more music was being finished and delivered and everyone within the label was starting to understand more about hundred reasons and what they were the uh the strategy for uh, releasing quite a lot of music in form of the eps up front of the ideas above our station album coming out um a lot of that came from the marketing team. And the, the, there's a, uh, I was going to say a young man. He was a young man at the time. He's a bit older now. Uh, it was a guy called Jason Rackham who really pushed to to um, grow the grow the excitement and the buzz and the, and, the, and the size of the fan base in advance of an album coming out by working these EPs, making videos for... Uh, each of them, and uh, really really getting the the fans engaged in the run up to uh, announcing an album release and actually, I was looking back over the time frame of it the other day and um, it was we, we spent i guess best part of a year just working the EPs rather than um, rather than moving on to the album.
0: going back a little bit now with larry in the timeline for his first experiences with the band and getting signed well your, your first ever performance according to your website now your website's incredible it's yeah. on the Wayback machine so i have had to sort of dig through some yeah. vpns to get there but it has yeah. like a list of every single gig you've ever done and who you were supporting yeah. with and it, you know it's wild your first ever performance according to the website was at kingston's the peel on january 22nd 2000 and your debut album came out 20th of May 2002 so about 2 years and a half yeah. later on a major label as well yeah. like did it feel breakneck at the time like was was it a different scene where stuff like this could grow faster like what are your memories of those early years kind of from joining the early EPs up until the release of the debut
3: i actually think i'm going to disagree with the website here mm. i actually think our first gig was millennium eve so, December 31st, 1999, in Exeter, because we, we were really good friends with uh, a, a woman called Pippa and a guy called Dave, who owned the Cavern Club in Exeter, and we've become really good friends with him in previous bands. So, we went down there to do a gig on Millennium Eve. So, anyway, before I answer the rest of the question, that's what I think our actual first gig was. Right, right, right. Well, that's, okay. what I tell, <laughs> that's what I tell everyone when, whenever anybody asks. So I might like, I might be wrong, or sure. i might be wrong, but but yeah, it, it I suppose in hindsight it does feel like that was quite a short period of time. I <laughs> when you're saying that the first memory I have was is I remember us hanging about moaning that it was taking too long to get the record deal signed at one point because it took us like from the time the, they first made an offer because they came to see us early like it was early they kept like Blair came to see us like I can't remember it might have been our fifth gig or something it was super (laughs) early and I think I think he first came to see us when we supported Kitty at the garage um that's definitely the first night I met Rad Adam Saunders who was and still is our agent because he came into the dressing room afterwards and went I've got you support too at Idlewild I'm your agent now and we're like all right cool so it we was spotted by Sony and by Blair very quickly and then it took months and months and months to sign the deal i guess what the difference is when when we by the time we signed the deal we we basically had the record yes cuz we'd just written it in that year and a half and i guess before too long we were sh- and we also knew who we wanted to produce it we wanted dave sardy to produce it cuz he'd produced he produced the, the the albums that we want that, that made us want him were far water and solutions. The first soul Wax record that he'd done and probably some more obscure stuff like orange nine millimeter and the other sort of like when, when like New York hardcore bands were actually getting major record level mm. deals. Um, so we knew the producer we wanted, we had the album. So when they signed us, like I don't think it was that long before we were being sent off to record it. Maybe we did one EP and then did a bunch of writing and then delivered them some half-baked demos and they sent us to New York, which sounds insane by what happens today. I mean, you know, I I still make records now. And just thinking of, like, that happening to a band now that's signed to a major label, it's like, it just wouldn't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it's just like, off you go, off you go, just go and do what you want. Here, go and spend, you know, a couple hundred grand making a record in New York and we don't really know what it's going to sound like yet. I mean, it's kind of, it's just insanity. But that's still kind of the world that, that existed then. So yeah, I suppose it was. It wasn't that long before we got our first record out. But I honestly, just think it's because we wrote it in the year two thousand, not meaning to quote busted. That's th- that's year three. <laughs> <It's> very <powerful>. <laughs> <laughs> well, Yeah, that,
0: you know, I was saying to column as well. Like, it's, it, that's why I'm asking this. Cause I'm so fascinated because it really was like, obviously. File sharing in Napster was around then, but it kind of hadn't had that stranglehold, has it? So, to, people could do these things. People could invest in this way. I mean, you know, and you had a lot of yeah. hype as well. You, um, you know, you toured a Vidal Wild on the Enemy tour. You'd beaten Muse for best new band at the Kerrang Awards. Like, you know, you, you were pretty hot.
3: Yeah, I suppose so. I'm not sure if those things did those things happen in the year 2000.
0: I believe so. Me. Yeah, at the end of 2000, this best, best band. new band. Yeah, you beat Raging Speedhorn and My Vitriol as well along with Muse. Fair play. And then, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but um, I, w- I want to get to, I want to get to the debut. And of course, we will get to the debut proper in the next episode. But to close here, we have Colin speaking about the final EPs and the build towards that unbelievable record. Prior to the recording of the debut, the second and third EP were also sort of recorded and released. Is that right?
2: Well, we were, where we signed I think yeah we were signed to Sony for EPT. so that was kind of the first release um which was Remus which had Shine on it as well and then Soapbox Rally Um, and we did our video for Remus at the Exeter Cavern again Pippa and Dave amazing people um and yeah we did that and that was from Sony that was produced by uh, a guy called John Hannon who's very very sadly passed away um used to play guitar in a band called Understand Um really cool. Um, so that was really sad to hear about that. Um, I think it was mixed by Chris Sheldon. Um, so that got put out. And then EP3 was actually what you might call the proper first sort of single, because that was I'll find you. And that was the one that was sort of recorded for the record. Whereas the other stuff was recorded for EPs with, you know, with John Hannon and stuff like that. So yeah. (laughs) EP2 was casual recording. I'm pretty sure we did it in a room though, and like we in a studio, I think in Shepherd's Bush. And then Natalie and Broody were sort of in the same studio in the other room or something. That was quite funny.
4: Mm.
2: Um, I did speak to her, but I think Andy (laughs) Buse had a bit of a crush on her at the time. uh, In fairness, who didn't? Um, So it was like, "Ah, Natalie and Broody's in the other room. I'm like, okay, cool. (laughs) Um, So that was those sorts of little things. Those are the little things that kind of, I think, sort of change. You know, we used to rehearse in a place called. Ritz down in Putney and like Duran Duran and Lulu and Supergrass and stuff would rehearse there. And not that we ever spoke to them, really, because we didn't. But, um, you know, that's those were the types of things where you realised you were doing things a little bit differently to everybody else.
0: Well, I mean, just talking about people in the other room, exciting people there, like, this is just a, a, a purely personal question here. But um, prior to this, like, I've done many podcasts, and one of the podcasts I did was all about Metallica. I'm a huge Metallica fan. And um, I noticed on Discogs that Greg Fiddleman is noted as doing engineering on your third EP. He, he who is currently Metallica's main producer.
2: Well, well he, um, Greg Fiddleman engineered the first record. Yeah. Well, so, God. because I'll find you as the track from that was that that was from that rec- those yeah, recording yeah, sessions yeah. so yeah Federman's awesome yeah um, I, didn't,
0: I didn't know that i didn't know he actually was involved in that way that's amazing yeah well,
2: my understanding is he's responsible for the loudness force yeah um,
0: yeah yeah death magnetic kind of kicked a lot of that off yeah it did
2: indeed it did indeed um but greg was great uh really nice guy really cool um and dave Snyder was producing and he was engineer um and i know that um he worked quite a lot and quite close with rick rubin if you and i always say this to, to anybody but if you ever watch that video on youtube where you've got um rick rubin doing 99 problems with jay-z you can kind of see the guy with the black hair and the black t-shirt you know that's your boy right there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah yeah so uh, yeah there's your it film yeah. yeah but yeah he's great he was lovely
0: and there we have the first episode of live fast die ugly We'll be back for a huge exploration of ideas of our station, discussing its recording, its release, and the enormous impact it had on the band as they quickly became one of the hottest outfits in the country.